Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 411 Ground and Pound MMA podcast, your weekly look into the wide, wacky, wonderful world of mixed martial arts. I'm Robert Winfrey. I am your host. Whenever you happen to be listening to this podcast, morning, evening, unholy early hour, because China. Uh, Again, whenever you happen to be listening, thank you very much for listening. Thank you however you find us. Uh, And there's no iTunes, like Apple Music, I think it is now. Uh, YouTube, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Transistor. I think we're on PodCoin. Pretty sure we are. Uh, PodCoin, uh, if you happen to be going through that particular one. However you happen to have found us, thank you very much. Thank you for continuing uh, to support the show and all the other great shows over at 411Mania. You can also find our show there on the straight-up website, 411mania.com. Uh, we are posted there every week. On the agenda today will be a review of UFC on ESPN Plus 15. Uh, iffy card. Iffy card. We'll go over all of it. A preview of next week. Big one. UFC 242. I am excited. That is a genuinely great card. <laughs> kind of set to go. And, of course, news of the week. There were a couple of fight announcements. There was one fight announcement that happened a few weeks ago that I missed somehow. Mea culpa. And, uh, yeah, that's other news of the week. All right. I'm flying solo today. Jeff Harris, uh, just very busy guy at the moment, had to finish up a few other things. So hopefully he'll be back next week. I do enjoy talking to Jeff. And I hope you guys enjoy hearing from Jeff. I mean, if y'all... Uh, I'm not going to say I'd kick him off if y'all hate him, but, you know, this is a... I, no one has complained, so I assume you guys like listening to him and listening to our repartee, so to, uh, back and forth, so all right. Anyway, hopefully he'll be back next week. All right, let's jump into UFC on ESPN Plus 15, because I had to stay up all freaking night for that one. Uh, this was the UFC's return to China. They were in the city of Shenzhen. And, well, okay, let's, the main event was short, but boy howdy. Uh, Weili Zhang defeated Jessica Andrade via TKO 42 seconds into the first round. This, for as long as it lasted, was kind of nuts. I picked Jessica Andrade last week. I said, I said at the time that Zhang was very talented, uh, definitely a future, you know, a part of the future of the division. I wasn't sure that she demonstrated the ability to deal with Jessica Andrade. And in fairness, I stand by that if you look at the actual evidence we had. Turns out the evidence was profoundly incomplete in many respects. Uh, Andrade came out, pushed forward, walked into, after a little bit of exchanging, just a really nice straight counter right from Zhang that wobbled her. She fell forward. Zhang grabbed a tie clinch. Uh, and proceeded to launch elbows and knees and more of the same uh, until Andrade kind of got free, staggered back. Zhang followed up, punched her in the face again. She fell down along the fence. Uh, this is one of those, like, I wouldn't say m- maybe an all, like a top five clinch beatdown of all time, but it's probably top ten. Uh, this was this was a pretty thorough beatdown once Andrade got hurt. Uh I mean, again, this was a 42-second fight. There's not a ton that we can comment on. Uh, but there's a few things. One, I like the instinct from Zhang. After she hurt Andrade, she didn't 
seek to really tie up and control the clinch. She grabbed a position she felt kind of comfortable in and then started immediately trying to inflict damage rather than going into a prolonged positional battle. And she never gave Andrade uh, a chance to recover, which is a big deal. Uh, you know, like the knees from the clinch. A few of those elbows got towards the back of the head, but I don't know. It's it's a hard thing to police in real time. It really is. And I wish, I do wish referees were more consistent about it because there's a few techniques that we might be able to get back into MMA proper if they were properly enforced. And so, you know, I do wish that was more consistent, but again, some of these landed behind the ear, some of them were more towards the back of the head, and there's a bit of a gray area there, so I'm not trying to take anything away from Zhang, by the way. I'm just noting this is the sequence of events. Uh, you know, this is the first Chinese UFC champion. She's the first Asian champion. I know Benson Henderson is his mother's South Korean, but he's American. Uh, so again, this is our first, you know, Asian champion. And you know, the crowd seemed to respond very well to her. I'm not. Sh- this is one of those things where I'm not sure how big a star this is going to make her outside of maybe her native country. Um, because again, this thing started at some stupid early hour. I'm not sure if there's a replay on ESPN Plus or if you just have to wait the week before it will go into the archives and you can then watch it on demand whenever you like. But. And I, I just I do kind of question how many people actually saw this, which is a fairly large component. Um, again, you know, big win, and I again she's been a star on the a star on the rise for quite some time, and she definitely rose to the occasion. As for what's next for her, it's a little bit iffy. Mark and I did uh, some live alternate commentary for the main card, which you can listen to over on the Rattle Broadcasting Network. And we kind of wound up at the end, you know, spitballing a little bit. What do we think is next here? And Tatiana Suarez is definitely someone who needs to be in consideration. I know she's been a little bit inactive. She's been dealing with a couple of injuries, including her lingering neck injury, which is the same injury that uh, wound up stopping her from being able to wrestle or... She didn't make the Olympic team, but she was going to compete for the Olympic team, and some neck injury wound up uh, putting a halt to that, which is something she's still kind of dealing with, apparently. Uh, She's talked about it before. So if she's in a position to fight, I think she's definitely a viable contender. Assuming, and some of this is based on how soon you maybe want to get Zhang back in the cage and fighting, um, you might... And there's the upcoming card. The last card of the year is actually in South Korea. And if you put, you know, if there's a South Korean fighter in a title fight, Zhang's first title defense would make a great co-main event. But there's a few things still kind of in the air about that. We don't know how soon they want her back in the cage. If you wanted her to fight again before the end of the year, that's kind of it. And even that's a bit of a fast turnaround, you know. A three-month turnaround kind of thing is relatively fast for fighting. So the uh, the other option, of course, being the winner of the upcoming fight between former champion Joanna Janjacek and Michelle Waterson. And, I mean, I w- I w- if Andrade had won here and Joanna won, then the rematch is obvious. It, it's, it borders on self-evident because 
And Yoana had so thoroughly schooled Andrade. Uh, Yoana against Zhang, if assuming Yoana wins, and for the record, that is my pick. I, I don't know how that would match up because Yoana does great when someone is willing to be aggressive. Like that, that's really the fundamental key to her game is a lot of activity and kind of countering you at every available opportunity. Anyone who kind of sits back and is able to really kind of measure her and what she's doing, Rose did it that way and had a lot of success both times. Rose just was not biting on anything she was doing and then opportun- at moments of opportunity, closed distance and landed offense. Uh, Valentina Shevchenko was just having none of what... Funniest thing in the world, if you rewatch that fight, between corner, between rounds, and maybe they're just telling her this to, because that's one of the things she needs to hear, but Ioana's corner is telling her the fakes and feints are working. Valentina has no head movement. That's because Valentina... This is not to, you know, throw heap, heaps of glowing praise on Valentina, but she's not biting on anything because she doesn't need to. There's no head movement because everything Ioana's throwing is falling, you know, four to six inches short... So you don't need to move your head if you're not going to get hit. And then, you know, I mean, Valentina handled that fight, you know, handily. <laughs> so I don't know how Zhang, whether or not Zhang is aggressive enough to really kind of play into that. I don't know how the physical strength matches up. But I think it's an intriguing fight. Again, if Ioana gets by Michelle Waterson. And again, that is my pick as such when the time comes. Conversely, if Waterson beats Andrade, excuse me, if Waterson beats Yanjacek, She'd only be the second woman at straw weight to do that. And given her recent run, I think you might go with her. And just give Tatiana Suarez another kind of building fight, because while she's a bit of a monster, she's also a bit one-dimensional. And a little more seasoning is not the worst. Is not going to be the worst thing in the world for her. You don't want to put that off too long, but a little bit more in the case of Tatiana Suarez I don't think would be the end of the world. Um, sucks for Andrade, I don't know, she said after the fact that she would look forward to a rematch at some point in the future, she did not call for an immediate rematch, which, look, you get smoked in in 42 seconds, rematch is a hard sell, especially since she has no title defenses to her name. But Andrade is still a very good fighter, this is kind of the problem with strawweight at the moment. There's some really talented fighters, but... You're also kind of running into the situation where you've got a bit of stagnation going on. I mean, if we look at it... Uh, okay, these rankings need to be updated a little bit, but... You have Rose, who's maybe out of the sport. Certainly out for a while. You know, if Rose is going to come back, Rose and Andrade, uh, I could see happening as uh, as the next fight for both ladies. You have Suarez, you have Nina Ansaroff for some reason at number three. I mean, she's had a decent run as of late, but boy, that's weird. Um, Yanni and Jacek at four. Claudia Gadelli at five. That's a bit odd. Claudia's been really up and down lately. Michelle Watterson, Carla Esparza, Alexa Gray. Again, you're seeing some of the younger generation start to make their move up through the ranks with uh, you know, Grosso, Marino Rodriguez, uh, Cynthia Calvillo, uh, Weili Zhang, obviously. Uh, I mean, she's the champion. Uh, you know, Suarez. But there's still a lot of there's still a lot of the I hate to say old guard for a division this young, but you know the older guard. Uh, again, you have Andrade, who's been around for a while. Joanna, Claudia, who's been around. Carlos Spars has been around. You know, former champion. 
Uh, Watterson's a veteran. Uh, and so again, there's a need for more for a bit more rapid turnover in this division and a bit more talent acquisition. But you know, you can't manufacture talent. It it manifests through hard work and opportunity, or it doesn't. But it, but I mean, again, Andrade has fought a lot of the other top-ranked people already. On the plus side, Zhang hasn't. Uh, Zhang had, was coming off a win over Tisha Torres coming into this fight. And, I mean, her four wins in the UFC now are Andrade, most recently, Torres, uh, Jessica Aguilar, who she submitted, and then Danielle Taylor, who was her debut opponent. So, why is Tisha Torres still ranked? Look, I, I don't have anything against Tisha, but she's on a four-fight losing streak. You should not be in the top 15 at any division on a four-fight losing streak. Ugh. I don't know who does these rankings, but I kind of hate them. So anyway, congrats to Weili Zhang. Really, again, really impressive win. She just kind of starched <laughs> uh, a woman who's a bit of a... I mean, Jessica Andrade is a tank. And Zhang just very rapidly beat the brakes off her. So, good on you. Uh, again, I don't know how soon they'll want to get her back in the cage. If they want to try for another one before the end of the year, uh, it'll be December would be my guess. And uh, I don't know. I don't know who's available to be uh, an opponent for that. Uh, somebody asked her. I have to mention this because this is the funniest thing. Someone asked her about fighting Henry Cejudo because Cejudo is... I don't even know what to call him at this point. He's been making noise about, you know, fighting women. And her response was, sure, if he gets a sex change. <laughs> like, you know what? Good for you. Good on you. Uh... <laughs> Ball's in your court now, Henry. <laughs> That's the most perfect response to his stupidity that you could possibly have. So thank you for that. I, I needed that chuckle when I saw it. Uh, your co-main event. Bit of an upset here. Li Jing Liang defeated Eliza Zaleski Dos Santos via TKO 451 of the third round. Really surprising from Dos Santos. He wasn't doing a lot of the stuff that normally finds him success. He was not leg kicking. He, he, A lot of his kicks were more the gimmicky stuff. He didn't box very well. And again, his boxing's never been great, but it looked his punches just were not good here. Whereas Jing Liang... A lot of movement, a lot of sidekicks to the body, a lot of straight punches. That's inevitably what led to the finish. Uh, this is probably the biggest win of Jing Leong's career. I mean, like I said last week, Zaleski Dos Santos was wildly underappreciated. That's true. He was on a seven-fight winning streak coming into this. Think about that for just a second. You win seven fights in a row in a tough division, like welterweight, and you're rewarded with A, only the 14th spot, and B fighting in China at, you know, 5.30 in the morning Eastern time. It wasn't that, I don't think it was that early, but early in the morning Eastern time. And no one sees you get knocked out. Like, that's, uh, that sucks. That really sucks. If you're Dos Santos. Uh, again, big win for Jing Liang. Don't know what he does next. You could probably give him, uh, I hate to just go back to complaining about the rankings, but... You've got guys like Robbie Lawler at 13. Anthony Pettis is still ranked. I think he's maybe going to drop back to lightweight, which he should do. He's not a welterweight. Uh, 
there's guys you could match him up with going forward, but I don't know. I mean, again, this was a pretty significant win. But I'm, I don't know. He's just never really been the guy that had a ton of momentum. And maybe he's finally, you know, really hit his stride as far as that goes. But uh, we'll have to see going forward. I don't know who he fights next. You know, you could do um, Nico Price is fighting James Vick. You could fight the winner of that. Uh... I think that would. I think that could have some implications. Uh, he could fight. Uh, Mike Perry fought Vicente Luque, which that win only got Luque two fifteen. God, I hate the people making these rankings. I really do. I mean, for God's sake, Nate Diaz is ranked. Nate Diaz's only wins at welterweight in the last 10 years are Conor McGregor and Anthony Pettis. He's not a top 15 welterweight. What's the matter with you people? Ugh. I hate them all so much. Like that, 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 that is the dumbest thing. Yeah. Anyway, point being, there's options for him, but I don't know that he's really going to be in a position to like make a run up the division. Could be wrong. Again, he might really finally be putting everything together, and if so, you know, good on him. Uh, Kai Kara France defeated Mark De La Rosa via unanimous decision, 230 27s, 129-28. Uh, predictably enjoyable flyweight scrap, if not terribly memorable. Uh, Kara France is on a pretty good run overall. He's now 3-0 and in the UFC. No finishes yet, but he hasn't lost a fight since 2016. Uh, he's on an overall eight-fight winning streak. Uh, yeah, not bad for a guy who at one point had a three-fight losing streak in much smaller promotions. So, yeah, good for him. Um, Song Kanan defeated Derek Krantz for unanimous decision, 29-28 across the board. Um, no issues with the scoring here. This... This largely came down to the first round, with Krantz's wrestling really taking the second, and then Song's just... Knowing at a minimum he needed the third, he fought like a bit of a madman that third round and just was able to get enough damage. So it kind of comes down to the first, and Krantz had a takedown. He had some top control. He didn't do anything with it. And I tended to be, watching it live, I thought Kanan did the better work in the first round. I gave him the round. That said, again, if you're... 29-28 for Krantz. I I don't know. I don't hate that scorecard. I'll phrase it like that, even though I believe Kanan won. Uh, Mizuki, in a way, had a successful debut. This was some bullshit scoring. <laughs> Sorry, I try not to swear on this show, or at all. Um, in a way, wins via split decision. 29-28 twice, and then won 29-28 for Wu Yanan. Um, I was 30-27 for in a way. I don't know which singular round you could give Yanan, much less two. That was bizarre. That was just absolutely bizarre scoring. Yanan missed weight by three to four pounds, depending on how you want to count where flyweight starts. Um, that said, Inouye actually looked like she could maybe make 115, uh, just based on her body type, if she really wanted to. She just actively pressured Yanan back the entire fight, boxed her up, got in close. Uh... Really solid debut for Mizuki in a way, so good for her. Uh, then on the prelims, Anthony Hernandez submitted Jun Yong Park with an anaconda choke in the second round. 
Uh, Park had a good first round, just kind of uh, consistently outboxing Hernandez in the second. His takedown defense slowed a little bit. Hernandez was able to force grappling, got on top, got him out of there. Uh, not Nothing memorable. Um, okay, I need to point something out about some of these Chinese fighters, especially coming up. And some of them are only, like, going by their last, by one name. And... For some reason, when they are listed, they're listed as having two, and I, I don't know. It's just weird. Because, for example, here we have, uh, what he's listed at is Su Mudaraji. And I believe his name is actually, like, Sulamarji Mudaraj Su. Something like that. I could be mistaken. I know there's another guy we're going to talk about in a second that I believe that is true for. So I'm not sure... <laughs> how accurate some of these naming conventions are that the UFC is going with, or how they're listed in other places, because most, you know, like, most of websites that keep track of this stuff tend to list first and last names at a minimum, and if you're only going by one, and I don't know, it just kind of screws it up, so I don't know. Anyway, Sumudaraji defeated Andre Sukum, taught via unanimous decision, 30-26, 30-26, 30-25, 30-25 is, is at least one, is one generous 10-8 that I did not give. 30-26 is fine. Um, Sukumtot broke his left hand in the first round and never got back into the fight mentally. Never got a handle on the footwork of Mudaraji, who just kind of moved around and punched him in the face a lot. Um, at light heavyweight... God, this fight sucked. Uh, da Eun Jung defeated Hadis Ibrahima via Ninja Choke slash Power Guillotine three minute, or excuse me, two minutes into the third round. It's crappy light heavyweight. It's a crappy light heavyweight fight. I, I don't know what else to tell you. At lightweight, Demir Ismagulov defeated Tiago Moises via unanimous decision, thirty twenty six, and then two thirty twenty sevens. Thirty twenty six is a again. There's a ten eight in there that I thought was marginal, but I was okay. I, I might have given him a ten eight actually. Now that I think about it. Uh, striking clinic from Ismagulov. Also, I'm calling BS on whoever of the uh, graphic for their reach on this one, because they listed the reach as being much closer than it was. Michael Bisping on commentary kept mentioning that Ismagulov had like a four-inch reach advantage, and watching them in the cage next to each other, I think Bisping's the one who's correct. I don't know if the graphic was wrong or what, but... I mean, like, they, they erroneously list Frankie Edgar's reach. Like, they had... Uh, I, can't, I think it was the fight with... Uh, Brian Ortega, the, like the graphic shows, Ortega only has like an inch or so of reach, something small. Then they're actually standing next to each other, and it's kind of like, no, that's really wrong, really wrong. <laughs> so, uh, good win for Ismagulov, who's on a really good run overall. I believe this makes him three and zero in the UFC, uh, on a thirteen fight winning streak, I think overall. Uh, definitely a guy I'm looking forward to. I, I look forward to seeing him. I like watching him fight. So, curious to see what he does next. Definite kind of prospect to pay attention to. I mean, it's lightweight, so there's a lot of those. Um, yeah, this is the other Chinese guy who... The UFC had listed as Adalong Hele, and I believe that's just like his... That's one name. And then he has a different either family name or, pers or a specific name. I don't know which. I, again, the UFC is not even really consistent about... How they list, because most Eastern names, you know, Chinese, Japanese, etc., they're, they're, uh, the, con the cultural convention is to list your 
family name first, followed by your specific name. So, okay, uh, my my name for my name would be listed as Winfrey Robert rather than Robert Winfrey. And I'm not sure because sometimes the UFC will reverse the convention for the for when they talk about them and when they announce them to being to the westernized version, which is again personal name followed by family name. And sometimes they don't. And now apparently they're keeping them listed as family name, personal name. But whenever they have reference to them on like graphics or whatnot, they actually list the family name, which again comes first here. So I, I don't know how they're doing it. They're horribly inconsistent about it. And it's deeply annoying. So I don't... Anyway, um... Alatong Hale defeated Dana Batgarel via unanimous decision. 29-27 across the board. Another bit of scoring I violently disagree with. Uh... I don't think a 10-8 was called for at all. Uh... The one I think they gave him was the first when Alatong did get a knockdown. I mean, I don't want... He won the round. But he got not he scored a knockdown but prior to that he had been losing that round not egregiously but losing and a knockdown is not enough to immediately get a 10-8 under the MMA scoring system nor should it be i i firmly believe nor should it be it should be enough to win you a round unless the other guy has done a tremendous amount of work to negate it and that wasn't the case here. so I, I i don't disagree with the winner necessarily the 10-8 seems very wrong. Um, I mean, this was a decent enough fight, I guess. Just, I don't know. It didn't resonate, really. Um, Batgarel had a really good... Again, he had a good most of the first round before he got dropped. He had a good second round. Alatang's only real punch was a counter right, which, when he landed, did damage. He, uh, the left eye of Batgarel was swollen very bad... was noticeably swollen by the time the fight ended. But he didn't have a lot other than that, and Batgarel's volume work did a lot of work, especially in the second round. In the third, Alateng was able to force grappling and just kind of grind out a... grind slash eke out the decision. Now again, based on the actual scoring, even if he'd lost the second round, we would have had a draw. It's so stupid. There, there were some odd scorecards la- uh, on this event. That's all I'm going to say. Uh, I think I scored this for Batgarel, but I'm not sure... Uh, but I let me also be clear. I don't have a problem with Alatang taking the decision. Uh, I think again. I think you're around a piece going into the third, and then it's how you score the third. And I don't think giving it to Alatang is wrong. And kicking everything off, Carol Hosa defeated Laura Precipio. I think that. I believe that's how that's pronounced. Uh, of a unanimous decision, 229-28-130-27. Meh. Um, neither woman has defense, <laughs> almost at all. Uh, just, I don't know. Nothing about this really stuck out. It was, wasn't boring. I mean, they combined for a really high total number of strikes thrown. And they landed a fair bit. So it's not like nothing happened, but I don't know. It just was sloppy and uninteresting to me. And that was UFC, again, on ESPN plus 15. So, again, really important main event. New champion, first Chinese champion, first Asian champion as such. A lot of credit there uh, to Wei Li Zhang. And interested to see what she does going forward. But other than that, um, 
again, just... I think we said prior to this event that it feels like a regional MMA card with a, you know, UFC caliber main and co-main event. And it kind of played out that way. Again, there's some good stuff here, but you watch a regional show, you can find some good stuff. And that's still kind of how this one played out. It's, I'm not trying to take a giant dump all over the card. Because now that it's in the banks, we can act instead of having to pre, instead of you know talking about it in the abstract, we can talk about it in practice. There was some decent stuff. There was some not so decent stuff. Such is life. Uh, okay, that will do it for UFC on ESPN Plus 15. This this Saturday, the UFC is early Saturday actually. I think the prelims are going to start at noon Eastern. That's like 10 my time. Uh, the UFC will be on, uh, back in the United Arab Emirates, they will be on Yaz Island. Uh, I'm not familiar enough with the specifics of that region to know whether or to know... I, I might have to look that up, actually. Because... Okay, that's technically an island. So I just had to have a look at that. Uh, Alright, this is a good... And this card... You know, this main card, for the record, has four lightweight fights and one heavyweight fight. One of these things is not like the other, as the old song goes. One of these things just doesn't belong. Uh, your main event, boy am I excited for this. Khabib Nurmagomedov, light, undisputed, undisputed UFC lightweight champion against in, current interim champion Dustin Poirier. You know, Poirier's been in the trenches, man. That guy has been through a lot. He's been had a lot of ups and downs to get to his current winning streak. I mean, and in fairness to him, since returning to lightweight, he has lost a grand total of one fight. When he just didn't have a great outing against a guy who had a really good night in Michael Johnson. Also, and I need to point out, I've read, I've been look, doing some research on this one, looking up some stuff on both guys, because I want to talk a little bit about this intelligently. And I think I saw this first from Jack Slack. That was the last time we saw the traditional uh, Dustin Poirier defensive posture. If you look at all of his fights prior to this, he has one reaction when engaged upon. Uh, he stands southpaw, so it's... It's extend, it's so weird, it's like extend your left hand straight out and curl your right hand uh, around your head like, you know, kind of uh, in a defensive posture. And that was kind of all he did whenever he was engaged on, and Johnson knocked him out, I mean, Connor knocked him out because of it too. If you watch their fight, Connor just kind of throws a few straight lefts and sees that he does the same thing, so instead of throwing a straight left, he loops it around the guard that, uh, Poirier's offering, cracks him behind the ear, drops him, and finishes him. Uh, after that, he started actually developing proper defensive reactions, and it served him well so far. Uh, he's on Again, he's on a good winning streak. I mean, four wins officially. He's undefeated in his last seven fights. That includes a no contest with Eddie Alvarez. Coming off that really, really good performance against Max Holloway. Um, yeah, that... That was a heck of a fight. Uh, I mean, it's probably the second best fight of the year right now behind uh, Gaslam and Adesanya. Whereas Khabib is kind of, he's been finishing the remainder of his suspension relative to 
Conor McGregor relative to UFC 229. And he actually did kind of sit out a little bit longer just in solidarity with some of his cornermen who also got suspensions that... I mean, look, if that's what he wants to do, that's what he wants to do. I'm not going to... I can't put a gun to his head and make him fight, nor would I if I, if I were given the option. It conflicts with a lot of my worldview, my personal ethics. Anyway. Um, this is a really good fight. Dustin Poirier presents a handful of potential problems for Khabib. One is Poirier's power. Poirier is... And this is kind of... He has power. He's not much of a straight-up one-punch knockout artist. But he has enough... He has power. And he... If he connects on you, you tend to be hurt. And he then is pretty good about not letting you off the hook. He also can wrestle and grapple. He's got a... In fact, that was the knock on him early in his career. Was... He's a good grappler who just gets sucked into brawls. And now he's become a much more polished striker who still has a, who still has the grappling credentials and ability. So, again, there's some potential issues he poses. Now, there's a few things about this that... Look, I'm picking Khabib. I need a... I pick Khabib against the division. Now, I'm going to be wrong one of these times. And... It's not that Poirier has no chance of success, but if I'm going to make a prediction at this point, I need a very compelling reason to pick against Khabib, and I don't have it here. I see ways for Poirier to win. Let me be clear about that. Part of it is appropriate forward pressure, because if you're too aggressive coming at Khabib, he just double-legs you and dumps you rather easily. I'm also not entirely certain the degree to which Poirier is very effective moving backwards. Now, he's hurt some people when he's been on the back foot. That's how he hurt Justin Gagey and led to that finish. He uh, had his really nice counter counter left to a leg kick. Gagey tore his leg up, though, man. That was gnarly. Apparently, it even, like, it literally tore part of his quad. Uh, he was able to kind of back Max Holloway off at times with some of his power, but that's also, it feels like it's somewhat contingent upon his opponent not only backing him up, but wanting to engage uh, in fisticuffs for a little bit. And that's not the purpose of Khabib's pressure. Khabib's pressure is designed to get you either to the fence so you can't move lap, so you can't move away from him, or to just get you to overcommit coming back coming back at him. He's not really going to push forward and engage in a prolonged series of combination exchanges with you. That's really not what he does at all. And I'm not sh- it's I'm not entirely sure about Poirier's ability to be under that kind of pressure and find the same level of success that he does against a striker who's trying to pressure him purely with striking. I now, might be wrong. But he also hasn't fought... I mean, again, if we look at uh, Poirier's last few fights, Jim Miller, Eddie Alvarez, Anthony Pettis, just engaging Eddie Alvarez again, and Max Holloway. All great fighters. In fact, uh, all great fighters. In fact, two all-time greats in there right, as of right now. Arguably three. Again, so, I'm not trying to knock his level of opposition. But none of them are wrestlers primarily, 
much less wrestlers near the level of Khabib. In fact, his entire run at lightweight, let me look at this. He came up, fought Carlos Diego Fajaya, fought Yancey Medeiros, Joe Duffy, Bobby Green, Michael Johnson. Yeah, he has not faced a really strong wrestler. I mean, Eddie Alvarez, again, let me be clear. Justin Gaethje can wrestle. Eddie Alvarez can wrestle. But Alvarez didn't wrestle him all that much in either of their fights. A little bit. Uh, When each of them got hurt, they wound up doing some stuff against the fence. Uh, And Justin Gaethje, of course, can wrestle. He just chooses not to. Eddie Alvarez can wrestle, tends to choose not to. Max Holloway. When I say Max can wrestle, it's definitely part of his skill set in the broader sense of wrestling. But I don't think Max has really looked for a takedown in his last, you know, three years fighting in the UFC. And in fairness, that's not his game plan. That's not his skill set. I'm not saying he needs to, he should change it. Max is wildly successful, the best featherweight in the world right now, and arguably the best featherweight ever. And some of the semantics between best and greatest comes into play a little bit there, but so I'm not saying how dare you not shoot a double on but it's not something he's really had to deal with recently as a primary concern. Because again, Eddie Alvarez, your primary concern is not his wrestling. It's a concern as the fight wears on or as things go badly for him, but his primary concern is less wrestling. Max Holloway's primary concern is not... The primary concern you have in fighting Max Holloway is not his takedown game or his top control. It absolutely is with Khabib. Now, Khabib's defense can be broken. Can He can be hit. He's just demonstrated a really good chin thus far. Khabib also tends not... When he fought Connor, he really didn't buy into Connor's game of... because of Connor's timing issue. Because while Connor has power, he doesn't have... How do I phrase this? Connor has power, but he tends to deliberately exacerbate it by timing your motions which is an incredible skill. And I'm not trying to knock the guy who say he can't punch. He can. But most of McGregor's power stems from you coming into him and him being able to time that effectively. Or you just standing awkwardly like Nate Diaz and kind of getting knocked over. And even in the Diaz fights, he was a lot of that when Connor found real success with his punches was built off of A, his kicks, and B, timing what Nate was doing. When he fought, I mean, when uh, when Connor fought Khabib, he hit him, especially in like the third round. He did make contact; it just didn't do anything because Khabib wasn't really giving him those same kinds of openings. It wasn't playing into that timing game he likes to. He really predicates a tremendous amount of his success on, and. So again, he's demonstrated a good chin, but there's a significant difference between fighters who try to knock you out with one punch and fighters who do a bit more what Poirier does. Poirier's got more of the thudding power. You know, again, it's less one punch and turn your lights out and more one punch, whoa, you're on the back foot seeing stars and here come five more. And what are you going to do as he's continuing the barrage? And... So his, his defense can be penetrated, and Poirier's power as, 
Hang on, Poirier's power does present problems. That's certainly a thing. And Poirier's overall grappling game, again, is quite good. He hasn't demonstrated it a whole lot recently because he hasn't needed to. So they do match up in some interesting ways. Um, the other thing that kind of might wind up playing into this is cardio. Uh, Max, excuse me, Dustin against Max kept a really high pace for five rounds between those two. He did fade at a few different points in time, and I think his power wound up bailing him out of a few situations. When he was a little bit you know, fading and Max was starting to really kind of cook, and then he just he was able to find an opportunity to hit Max really hard and get him to back off. But he did keep the, but he did fight at a high pace for five rounds. I don't, uh, we haven't really seen that type of pace from Khabib. You know, there's, there's a line from Eddie Alvarez that still kind of sticks with me because I haven't seen it disproven yet. Uh, he mentions that he thinks you can only really wrestle for three rounds. Like, and when I say wrestle, I mean really wrestle. That it's just so physically taxing, and it is, that you can't do it for 25 minutes. And I, again, to the best of my recollection, even wrestling heavy fighters, guys like Khabib, I mean, watch Khabib and uh, Iaquinta. Khabib doesn't wrestle for five rounds. He wrestles for about three. And, I mean, there's an entire round that's spent on the feet. Uh... George St. Pierre, depending on who, there's a minor caveat with GSP in that if his opponent was just going to close guard once they got down, okay, you can settle in and actually work from top position. But a lot of his fights, he would, there's at least one round, almost one entire round that's spent on the feet. I think that's just energy management. You know, Randy Couture, uh, I mean, when he fought Tim Sylvia, you know, he, there's at least one whole round of that fight on the feet. And, again, I'm going into the Wayback Machine a little bit here with these. The level of skill and some of the reactions to takedowns and whatnot now are much, much different than back then. You know, again, you go back nine years, 11 years in the sport, you got taken down, you just closed guard. Like, there wasn't a tremendous amount of ability to fight to your feet, certainly not the level that there is today. So when it's part of the reason the vernacular in MMA is so different from other sports, because wrestling is not a takedown. Wrestling is everything that happens until someone concedes a position fundamentally. And I think that's why when, you know, I mean, watch guys like, you know, Cruz and Dillashaw or watch the bantamweight wrestlers and the flyweight. There's scrambling. There's motion. There is no concession to the position. And that is extremely tiring, especially at a high level, especially as you get bigger. So I am a little bit curious how Khabib will deal with what I imagine will be at least one round that's going to be spent on the feet. Because that's probably going to happen at some point if the longer this fight goes. There's a question of how much damage... I mean, because Khabib does not take a lot of damage when he fights. He just doesn't. Poirier, we've seen take some damage and kind of come through. But there's also... I'm not sure how well... Because Poirier will respond to adversity in the moment. I, I don't want to make... I don't want to... 
say otherwise because that's very that's very evident if you look at his fights. You know, Eddie Alvarez hurt him, and he responded. Max Holloway had him in bad situations on occasion. He responded. This is not a man who wilts in the face of adversity. I am not sure how he responds in the face of continued adversity, and there's a significant difference. And again, this is not a knock on Dustin. But there's a world of difference between being in a bad spot in the middle of a round and being able to respond, which not even a lot of guys can do that. Let me be clear. There's plenty of guys who just wilt on that situation. Dustin Poirier is not one of them. But then there's also how do you do when you're really down? You know, the number of guys after the first round when they fight Khabib, I mean, every, they kind of show the the Edson Barboza footage as kind of being emblematic of that. Just Edson kind of gets up after that round and does not know what happened to him. And that's not uncommon. Uh that's not at all uncommon, and there's a world of, again, there's a world of difference between being in a striking exchange, being in a bad spot, and having the fortitude and wherewithal to respond, and being two rounds down, having absorbed the damage that Khabib puts on you, because Khabib puts damage on you whenever he can, especially if he's forced, if you're trying to get up, he's punching you in the face, if you're on your back, trying to maneuver, he's punching you in the head, and the body, and he just is relentless like that. And coming back from that is a very, very different story than coming back from a bad spot in a round. And again, I'm this is Dustin Poirier might absolutely have that. I imagine he does as part of his constant who he is as a person. He can do that. But it also has not really been demonstrated. And again, it's one. It's also one thing, and let me be clear, this is true of Khabib, too. It's one thing to kind of not be terribly phased by Connor's punches when Connor is really trying to exacerbate his power, and you also kind of know that he's only got really the one punch. Connor's right hand is not much of a threat. It's all his left. And especially if you once you get him to spend a round and his legs aren't quite under him the way they used to be, it's one thing to kind of be okay with that. It's another to kind of be okay taking punches from Dustin Poirier, who we've seen carries power laid into a fight. So there are some unknowns relative to each other in particular. So I'm looking forward to this fight. I really, really am. I think whoever's going forward is going to dictate a lot of who's successful. I think if Poirier is going to be successful, he has to do some damage relatively early, at least get Khabib thinking about it. Because if Khabib just gets to do what he does, we know how that goes. And it is not well for everyone who stepped in the cage with him. But I also don't think Poirier is going to be tapping to a, a no-hook neck crank either. <laughs> so, a really good fight. Looking forward to it. Our co-main event, I'm also really looking forward to. A rematch between Paul Felder and Edson Barboza. These two fought uh, back in Back in 2015, this was actually the first loss of Paul Felder's career, was to Edson Barboza. And they had a good fight back then. I, that was, I think that was your fight of the night. Uh, and they're both better now. I'm, I am definitely looking forward to this. Um, Barboza, I think he's on a bit of a slump, isn't he? 
Yeah, he really is. Jeez. He's 1-3 in his last four. Now, in fairness to Barboza, those losses are to Khabib, Kevin Lee, and Justin Gagey. So he's... Those are some tough guys. And he has a, the win over Dan Hooker, which... Boy, that was a beating. That was not a pleasant... That was a beating. So, again, part of the key to beating Barboza is, you know, appropriate pressure. I... Felder's not much of a pressure fighter, which is kind of why, I don't know. I mean, I picked Barboza the first time. I'm going to pick Felder this time, actually, I think. Barboza's, uh, again, Barboza's still talented, still dangerous, still presents a lot of the same problems. But I think that might actually be part of the reason he might have plateaued is he's still presenting the same problems. Whereas Felt, and again, they're both better now than when they first fought, but I think Felder has actually diversified his game, whereas Barboza has simply refined it. And refining versus diversifying is largely just a matter of personal preference. Sometimes you do just want to refine, sometimes you do want to diversify. I'm, again, I'm going to go with Felder here. Um, might be foolish of me. This might just be a stylistic matchup that favors Paul, that favors Barboza, but I'm going to go with Felder. All right, next up, another really good fight. Islam Makachev, who's been on a bit of a tear, actually. He's 17-1 and as a professional, the one loss being a knockout in his second UFC fight. I wouldn't say a flash knockout, but... Uh, Adriano Martins is uh, not with the UFC anymore, I believe. No, he is not. And, so again, I'm not saying it's... A, he had a decent run for a little bit, though. So again, I'm not saying it's a flash thing, but he seems to... Uh, it does not seem to be a consistent weakness. He's on a five-fight overall winning streak. Uh, his fight with Armin Sarukian had a lot of fun wrestling in it. I mean... It, you do kind of have to really be into wrestling to enjoy it, but I am, and therefore I was. <laughs> I did. Uh, he knocked out Glayson Tebow, submitted Cajun Johnson. Makachev's really good. He's fighting Davi Hamosh, who's also really good. Hamosh has only lost once in his UFC run on a four-fight winning streak. Uh, I expect a lot of really fun grappling exchanges out of these two. I'm picking Makachev, but... That could be a good... That, that's that got some potential. Our lone heavyweight fight. Curtis Blades will fight Shamil Abdurahimov. Curtis Blades coming off of that win over Justin Willis. I'd kind of forgotten that happened. I thought the last time I saw him was the Ngannou fight, but I can kind of remember the Willis fight now that I think about it. I mean, Curtis Blades is a weird guy because he's only lost to Francis Ngannou. Like, that's it. He stopped... He uh, stopped Alexi Olenek, he beat Mark Hunt, he stopped Alistair Overeem. This is a talented fighter by every appreciable measure. But, I, I don't know, he never really seems to have... A t Again, the closest he got to real momentum was after the Overeem fight. And he followed that up by getting stopped by Francis Ngannou in the first round. I mean, their first fight was a doctor stop is due to a cut between rounds... It was stopped between rounds two and three. But he was not having a tremendous amount of success in that fight either. So, I mean, I expect him to win here. Much, uh, Shamil Abdurahimov is 
a difficult fighter to beat. He's only lost twice in the UFC to Tim uh, Tim Johnson, who that poor guy on hours' notice just got sent to the Deadlands by uh, Vitaly Minikov at the Bellator event a couple of weeks ago, and then Derek Lewis. But I mean, he's actually finished a couple of fights now. He stopped. He knocked out Chase Sherman, beat Andre Arlovsky. Uh, stopped Marcin Tabora with strikes. So again, not an easy guy to beat, but I think Blades will probably win that fight. And then kicking off the main card, another lightweight fight. Marabek Tysimov, who's, I've kind of been, you know, preaching his, his, I've been stumping for him a little bit. Then he missed weight against, uh, missed weight badly against Des Green. He weighed 161 for that fight. And then, one, but boy, did not look good. I mean, prior to that, he had finished like five guys in a row. And then fights a higher level of opposition in Des Green and, again, wins, and that is ultimately what matters, but does not look as good. Uh, anyway, he's getting another step up in competition here against Carlos Diego Fajaya. Uh, Fajaya coming off the win. He missed weight, too. Good grief, man. Missed weight when he fought Rustam Kabilov, but is on a four-fight winning streak. Again, this is a this is a pretty big step up for Tysimov. I'm going to pick him, but I'm probably... Uh, but I can see Fajaya winning that one. Uh, I can absolutely see how he could win that fight. Alright, on prelims. The preliminary card is going to be simulcast on ESPN Plus and FX, apparently. Uh, Joanne Calderwood will fight Andrea Lee. This is actually a good fight, and I think the winner uh, the winner may not be the number one contender necessarily. Both ranked. Where are they ranked? And really is six. Calderwood is five. You know, the winner might actually be the number one contender because the women's flyweight rankings, for some reason, have Jessica I at number one. Now, look, I know that she did technically beat Caitlin Chukagian, but she got so violently knocked out that you cannot have her as the number one contender. I've kind of, I've gone back and forth on what, the, on how ranking should be done. And I've kind of come around to Luke Thomas's point. I'm not sure. Uh, how do I phrase this? I'm not sure how much I agree with it necessarily. Again, if we were to take the totality of his position point by point, whether or not I'd agree with every point. But the fundamental purpose of rankings is to determine the next most deserving challenger to the champion, not determine the rankings for not determine the rankings for who are the best fighters in the division as uh, as such. Because if you do that, then they borderline don't, then they don't actually serve the purpose they're intended to serve. So Jessica, I should not be the number one contender. Uh, Luz Carmouche still sits at number three. You have Caitlin Chukagian at two. Chukagian might be the is probably the next most deserving, and will probably wind up getting the next shot. That will be hilarious, by the way, watching her just shadow box in front of Valentina. Uh, Jennifer Maya at number four. Maya's been a bit iffy on her weight, though. Then you have Calderwood and Lee. So if Calderwood or Lee comes out of this fight very with, uh, with a spectacular performance and generate some momentum, 
they might be the next uh, title challenger. So, relevant fight. I'm leaning towards Andrea Lee. I but these two should be able should have a pretty decent MMA style striking fight. Um, at featherweight, Zubaira Tuhugov will fight uh, Laroni Murphy. This can't have been the original fight. This was the original fight based on all available information. Wow. Um, okay, Tuhugov uh, is coming off the loss to Hanato Moicano, the split decision loss. Um, I kind of I, I, Tuhugov has a bit of potential. I'm gonna go with him over someone I know nothing about. I'm um, at women's bantamweight. Liana uh, Juja. I'm going with Juja, but if she's, I need to see where she's from. I imagine Brazil, but I want to confirm because if it, if it's Brazil, I'm gonna go with Juja and just leave it at that. No, she is from Georgia. I do not know how that would be pronounced then. Um, I'm okay. I'm gonna for the purposes of conversation stick with uh, might be Joja. I'm going with Joja until I hear otherwise. <laughs> uh, she's fighting Sarah Morris. Um, Morris has one win in the UFC. Jeez. Okay, two. She has two. Sorry, I missed that. But on a three-fight losing streak, and uh, Joja is seven and two overall on a five-fight winning streak. Yeah, five. Uh, I'm actually going to go with Joja there. At lightweight, we have Ottoman, Az- um, excuse me, Izatar against Timu Pakalin. Uh, Azatar is Moroccan. He's fought in the UFC before, yes. I want to say he has actually. No, there's, no, there's a he- there's a Moroccan, I think, heavyweight who's fought in the UFC. Better at featherweight. I know there's another Moroccan fighter. I can't remember who it is. My apologies. Anyway, Izatar and Pakalin is 8-2. and two. Uh, Coming off that loss to Mark Jacquezi, he got knocked stupid by Jacquezi. That was hilar- that was almost a hilarious knockout. Hmm. I'm actually going to go with uh, Azatar here. Not entirely convinced of that, but I'm going to go with it. Then on Fight Pass, we have Bilal Muhammad and Takashi Sato. Really, Muhammad is stuck on the prelims? That is... Uh, that guy deserves better than that. He absolutely deserves better than that. Um, this is Sato's second fight in the UFC, I believe. He's 15-2 and two overall. Yeah, he beat Ben Saunders. Um, this is actually a good fight, actually, uh, now that I think about it. I'm going to lean towards Muhammad, but uh, Sato might surprise some people. He's, again, he's pretty good. Nordin Taleb will fight Muslim Salikov, uh, the uh, the king of kung fu, uh, which is a title he won, actually. He won the um, the, the, Sando, the Wushu Sando World Championships, which is where he gets the title. Uh, he's gone one and one in the UFC, coming off that knockout over a knockout win. Taleb's just such a solid technician, though. I don't know. He's had a few ups and downs recently. All right, I will emotionally go with Salikov just because 
know, the king of spinning stuff. Uh, Omari Akhmedov will fight Zach Cummings. Have these two fought before? I almost want to say they have. I need to double-check this. No, they have not. Odd. Anyway, Akhmedov, uh... On a good run recently. Unbeaten in his last four, whereas Cummings... Uh, won his last two. That's not a bad fight. I'm gonna go with Akhmedov there, but... Uh, Cummings can just survive an onslaught and then beat up the tired Akhmedov. And kicking everything off, Don Madge will fight Fedor Z uh, Ziam. Ziam? Uh, he's from France. How do they pronounce that? Go with Ziam. Uh, until I hear otherwise. Don Madge is... South African, yes? Yes, ha. Remember the flag. Madge uh, won his UFC debut. Yeah, he knocked out Tay Edwards. Hmm. Going with Madge. Uh, but not a bad fight. So anyway, on the whole, looking forward to UFC 242. That's a that's a tasty card. Uh, so, and I will have coverage of that Saturday morning in the MMA Zona 411 Mania. So please stop by, say hello, leave a. Uh, Leave an insult if you feel so inclined. I don't know how the moderators feel about that in the comments section, but... Uh, doesn't, hey, look, I know I'm not all that great, so feel free to throw an insult my way every now and then. Uh, Alright, so, again, stop by. Deeply appreciated. Okay, let's, let's jump into news. You know what, let's just start with the sad news. BJ Penn got into apparently a bit of a drunken street fight that then spilled into a bar and when it was in the street he got like not badly hurt by a, like he got knocked out for a second followed the guy into a bar apparently and resumed the fight got there's some video of him with like full back mount pounding on the guy but I don't know man I mean what is there to say at this point about BJ Penn I don't know what to say. I don't know what I can say that I haven't already said. I said from a purely meritocratic standpoint at the after the Klee Guida fight, he shouldn't be fighting. And a few people pushed back on me on that one. And look, this isn't a giant ha-ha I told you so because I was purely talking about the merits of his fighting. But I'm going to go ahead and say, you know what? Yeah, I did kind of tell you so. And I'm not the only one. He should not be fighting. And I don't just mean in the UFC. I mean, sure, not a UFC-level fighter, that I believe is demonstrable. Actually empirically provable. I don't think he should be sanctioned to fight at all. I mean, <sighs> this is a hard thing to kind of really parse out because plenty of people who have done horrible things in combat sports still get licensed to fight. I mean, Mike Tyson springs immediately to mind. He is not the only one. I mean, for whatever you want to feel about some of John Jones's behavior, it's again, combat sports do not attract the most morally upstanding, stable human beings. It just doesn't. 
Not to say that there aren't morally upstanding, stable human beings in the profession. There are. But let's not pretend that it doesn't also attract. And given what we have now come to understand about head trauma, in some respects create the unstable ones. If you're 40... And look, I take a dim view of drunken brawling when you're 20. But I at least understand it. I mean, again, I don't think I'm of the opinion life's better off absent the consumption of alcohol. But hey, that's just me. I'm not saying you can't drink. I I take a dim view of people who do stupid stuff even when they're in their 20s. I managed to avoid doing it. In fact, millions of people managed to avoid the stupidity of doing stupid things in their 20s. That said, plenty of people engage in it. And I at least can intellectually understand how that happens. BJ Penn's 40. Drunken street fights, or street fights at all when you're 40, absent actual self-defense. And we don't know how the fight started, but given how it plays out, I'm, I'm, I find it hard to believe that this was entirely self-defense on the part of BJ Penn. I might be mistaken, evidence might prove me wrong, Based on everything we have now, that's where I've landed. It's it's not a good look, especially when you start considering some of the things his, uh, I believe, ex-wife has alleged. And again, just uh, it's just allegations. But they have been made, and they need to be investigated. That is my stance on this. Uh, he was accused of, you know, threatening someone with a machete. Like this is not this is a man who needs help on various levels. He should not be fighting professionally. This is if if we can't get together and understand and come together on this point at this point in time, what are we doing? Like if you're a regulatory body, how do you give this guy a license? And it's not just the fighting, it's not just the street fight. It's partially that. It's the totality of it. If, if, we, if governing bodies exist to provide regulation and to be a stopgap against the worst impulses of unfettered exploitation, and they're not going to stop BJ Penn from fighting you are not actually serving the function of your creation. This is why you exist literally for, the, maybe not for the sole purpose, but with, within your purview is literally stopping people from fighting who should not be fighting. And if you're not actually doing your job, what purpose do you serve other than collecting a paycheck and further bloating government spending? And I say that not just because that's my political leaning, these are actual government bodies. If you're a non-governing body doing this, and this is part of your purview, I have a complete... Then my, elements of my la- my point would be the same. My language would be different. I don't know what we're doing, guys. I, I mean, Mark Raimundi, I think, in his uh, op-ed, had a closing line where if you're... If you're going to encourage or enable BJ Penn to continue fighting professionally, you're actually encouraging an active tragedy to play out in front of our eyes. And I think that's true. How do you think this story ends if we keep going down this road? If nothing else changes, how do you think this ends? Because it is, it is not well. 
something has to fundamentally change and at a and look at a bare mi- and I'm not saying you know the man needs to be committed but at a bare minimum he is not fit to fight for money we've just reached that point with BJ Penn and the governing bodies whose purpose whose one of their fundamental purposes is to actually enforce situations like this I wonder if they will I genuinely wonder if whatever, wherever they try to sanction BJ Penn and Nick Lentz, which is still on the books, by the way, that is still actually a fight that the UFC has scheduled. I wonder if they're actually going to have the integrity to serve their purpose for being, or if they're just going to rubber stamp this and continue keeping the UFC in their good graces. Because... I don't know what we're, other, otherwise I don't know what we're doing. I don't know what purpose you serve other than to provide a veneer of credibility if you're going to allow someone like BJ Penn and the situation BJ Penn is in to continue fighting. I mean, ugh, I don't know. I don't know, and I don't know what else to say. I don't know what else there is to say about BJ Penn at this point. I genuinely don't know. I don't think there is anything. And it's sad. It's genuinely sad. All right, on to a few fight announcements. Happier news. The UFC announced, uh, this was a couple of weeks ago, but I think I missed it for whatever reason. Uh, Damian Maya will fight Ben Askren. I believe that's scheduled to be the main event for the UFC's return to Singapore later this year. You know, if you're into grappling and mixed martial arts, that's a great fight. There's some real points of conflict, there's some real positions that each man approaches differently that I think will be potentially interesting. If you're not interested in the kind of the in some of in how MMA grappling plays out, this might just wind up boring you to tears. Um, and look, especially if you're on, on the more casual side of the fan base, this is probably not going to be a fight for you. And look, casual fan base is the largest portion of the fan base, and I'm not going to sit here and insult them for general taste in fights, necessarily, because there's no point. And let me be clear. Casual has become a... Oh God. It, through overuse, it's lost part of its meaning. There are people on Twitter who will, like, call Grabaka Hitman a casual. Like, what, what the actual F? That man consumes more combat sports than any probably any two average fans of combat sports. But because we persist in not just overusing terms, but then taking them to unnatural extremes in their overuse. So when I, bear in mind, when I say casual fan base, I mean the type of fans who are just not inclined to watch a card that's going to air at an odd hour from from Singapore anyway. I That's kind of what I mean by the casual fan base. The casual fan base dips in and out of the sport. Like, uh, if you watched uh, the, U- the card from China live, you're a hardcore fan. There's no way. If you read a recap of it, you're a hard. You're on the hardcore side of things. There's not a single defining line that will determine hard, you know, casual from hardcore necessarily. 
But you've got to be on the... Again, if you're on the casual side of things, you know, Ben Askren and Damian Maia does nothing for you. And I'm going to go out on a limb. There's a fair amount of people who are more on the hardcore side of the spectrum <laughs> who that still does nothing for. In fact, I'm, I'm almost positive that's true. I'd bet money on it. But I think it could be an interesting fight. But again, I'm also interested in kind of the minutia of grappling and whatnot, so... Take your joy in the sport where you can find it. And you know what? I don't blame anyone for dipping out at times. The fundamental schedule and business model at this point of the UFC is designed to burn out fans. It is profoundly disturbing to me at some times when I consider my own fandom in the sport has spanned probably two and a half to three generations of other fans. Fans who came in, experienced the sport, and fell away. That's happened during my fandom, again, at least twice. If not three times. So, whether that's, whatever that says about my relationship with the sport and how unhealthy it is, I'll leave up to you. You can cast your own judgment as far as that goes. Uh, let's see. Also, in matchmaking news, the UFC announced the middleweight debut of Darren Till. He will fight... Kelvin Gastelum, though that's scheduled for UFC 244. Um, phew, heck of a test for Till up at middleweight, man. Kelvin Gastelum's the real deal. Uh, but could be a really good fight. That, again, that's a stiff test. And that's not an easy first step into the middleweight division. Uh, I do kind of like Gastelum's chances in that fight, in all honesty. So, but good fight. Um... That will not obviously be the main event because the UFC doesn't really uh, have pay-per-views with uh, non-title fights in the main event, as a matter of course, and certainly not that one. And that's not a knock on that fight in particular. But they're not going to headline Madison Square Garden with Till versus Gastelum. That's just not going to happen. That whole card is... It's still developing. Uh, Caitlin Chikagian versus Jennifer Maya. Winner of that could also be your number one contender for uh, Shevchenko. Anderson and Johnny, Corey Anderson and Johnny Walker, not a bad fight. Derek Lewis and Blagoy Ivanov, that's probably going to be a bad fight. Edmund Shabazian and Christoph Yotko, Lyman Good and Chance Rencounter. So, and it's, again, it's still coming along, and that card's not until uh, November 2nd, so I imagine we'll get more fights announced over the next three weeks or so for that card. Uh, alright, I don't think anything else, I don't think there's anything else major that's come out over the last week. Um, well, I mean, there's a bit that's come out as the UFC's been trying to fight off their current antitrust lawsuit where they revealed that their revenue share with fighters is about 20%, a little bit less, probably on average. And this sparked an interesting bit of dichotomy in some fu- in some people online. The people for a lot for who were saying for years that it can't possibly be as low as twenty percent. We're now saying twenty percent's fine. Look at McDonald's; they pay about twenty percent of their revenue to their employees, which is probably about accurate. There's two thing. There's two reasons that particular analogy does not hold up. One is the actual employee status. Um, McDonald's employees are employees. Fighters are not employees of the UFC. Two, 
the employees at McDonald's are not the product. The food is the product. The employees facilitate. Uh, the, the, the employees there facilitate, they partially create, they partially, whatever they, you know, be they cashiers or cooks or whatever, they facilitate the consumer acquisition of the product. The fighters are the product. That's what the UFC is selling. They're not, again, the fighters don't show up and collect a weekly paycheck. The fighters don't set up the cage. The fighters are the product the UFC is selling. And that's, so again, comparing the, again, the, you know, the worker and the cash, you know, the cashiers at McDonald's to the fighters in the UFC is not an accurate comparison. Comparing the food at McDonald's to the fighters is a more accurate comparison. And how much of their revenue does McDonald's spend on their food products? Because it's, I would guarantee it's north of 20%. I would guarantee it. I haven't seen McDonald's revenue charts lately, but that only seems to make sense. Fighters, again, fighters are not the, again, they're not employees, and whether or not they should be is an unsettled issue at this point. I tend to think we've reached, I tend to be of the opinion that we have reached the point where they qualify as employees of the UFC when fighters are signed to the UFC. Not all fighters are employees of the promotion. Just like I think not all professional wrestlers are employees of whatever organization is is hiring them. Again, if you're working for the WWE, I do believe you're an employee, just based on categorization. If you're working on the indies, you're probably an independent contractor is probably a more appropriate status. Not so much when you're in WWE. Likewise, if you're on the regional scene for MMA, an independent contractor status is probably more accurate than when you work for the than when you're with the UFC. When I think employee status is more appropriate. Now I might be wrong, and the National Labor Relations Board might disagree with me if they're if they ever have to examine that. But that's where I sit on the sta- That's where I sit at the moment. So, but again, they also are. The totality of what the UFC is selling is the fighters fighting. That's it. I mean, sure, they have some merchandise that they sell and whatnot, but the crux of the product the UFC offers is fighters. The crux of what McDonald's offers is hamburgers, not the person standing behind the counter taking your money. It's, it's, again, it's really not an accurate comparison. And... I'm again. There's some stuff that's going to come out of this that might that might lead to change, might not. I I look. I think fighters are underpaid relative to revenue in the UFC. I tend to think what they should be getting is closer to fifty. That's what football players get. That's what basketball players get. They get fifty percent of revenue by and large because they are the product. Fighters are the product the UFC is selling. And if you're in a business and you're only spending 20% or so of your revenue on the actual product you're selling, boy, howdy, are you making hand over fist. And that's what's going on here. Now, at the same time, I'm not going to get on my high horse and say, how dare the UFC not volunteer more money to the fighters. Sorry, fighters. You know what has to happen if you want more. You can either 
go out of your way to try and become a megastar like Connor or Khabib. Or you can engage in a little bit of collective bargaining. That's really the only way this changes. Despite personally being a capitalist, I'm not necessarily anti-union. That's, I have no issues with unions, provided they do what they're supposed to do. I have an issue with like public sector unions. That's a whole other thing. But fighters want to get a collective bargaining agreement going. I think that's what they should do. They're not, and they're and if history is any sort of indicator of the future, it's going to be a while before they do. But you'd like to think that them seeing, oh, hey, we get 20% of UF, of the revenue is slated for us in less than 20% in some cases, when we're the entirety of the product, maybe that should change. Who would have thought? And again, I am fundamentally, again, I'm at heart a capitalist and... Yeah, a bit of a free market guy, and <laughs> I'm, and I still can point out, hey, if you guys want to change this, this is how it's done. So there's that. That's still kind of worth paying attention to. Um, I think both Forbes and uh, like MMA fighting, maybe MMA Junkie, I'm pretty sure has uh, has some active reporting going on over it. Not so much ESPN. Who'd have thought? But so there's that to pay attention to. Um, in the world of boxing, God, Lomachenko is so good. Uh, the Lomachenko Campbell fight was a good fight, by and large, and just God, Lomachenko is just so good. I, I don't want to wax poetic. This is an MMA show, and you guys don't really want to hear me wax on about the state of boxing. Um, all right, let's go ahead and get into plugs then. I guess. Uh, actually, let me refresh Twitter first. See if anything crazy happened. Related to MMA. Uh, I do not see anything new, so... Yeah, alright, let's just go ahead and get out of here then. Uh, what did I do? You can find me this last week again. Mark and I did alternate commentary for UFC on ESPN Plus 15. So give that a listen if you're so inclined. Uh, this Tuesday, Mark Radlich and I on the Radlich and Broadcasting Network will be doing a TV party for season three of Hannibal, which makes me sad because I miss that show. I really do. That's not my favorite television show of all time, but it's pretty high on my list. So tune in for that. Um, last Thursday, Alexis Haina and I got together on an on a Thursday, damn you, Hollywood, to review Ready or Not. Fun was had. Uh, next, not, uh, so yeah, this week will be that. Week after that will be It Chapter 2. I'm waiting for Mark to use the hurricane, which will have passed by then as an excuse not to see the movie, so we'll see. Just, it would be poetic justice that he missed the first one due, missed Chapter 1 due to a hurricane, and would miss the second for the same reason. But I also have to give Mark grief about, you know, being a giant scaredy cat about horror movies. So, look forward to that in the near future. Um, I think that's it for me, actually. And then again, next week, again, Saturday, coverage. And I think we'll be doing the same thing. Well, we'll have live, uh, not live, but alternate commentary for the main card of UFC 242. That ought to be, uh, again, we're... 
my brain has not yet melted while trying to do it. My written coverage does not seem to have dropped off in quality. If you guys think it has, please tell me, because I'm happy to not do the, uh, you know, to not do the recording. If if you guys think that what I'm doing is dropping off, let me know. I will. <clears throat> I'm happy to prioritize. But my brain hasn't melted yet, and no one has said anything about one being abjectly terrible, more so than usual. So we're going to try that again, and we're just going to see how it goes. Okay. That's going to be it for me, everyone. Be back here next week to review UFC 242, and... Oh, yes. Oh, yes. We'll be previewing UFC on ESPN Plus 16. Cerrone versus Gaethje. Oh, just hook it into my veins. Sweet, sweet Gagey cowboy violence. I am so happy about that. Please hold together. Please hold together. Neither of them has a real history of, you know, pulling out of fights, but still, please hold together. All right. Thank you again, everyone. Thank you for sharing us around with your friends. If you have friends who are into the show, please let us know. Give us a review. Uh, wherever it happens to be. If you're on YouTube, give us a thumbs up if you think we deserve it. If we think if you think it's a thumbs down show, give it a thumbs down. Give us a review on iTunes or blog or Apple Music or wherever. I don't especially just you know, interact with the product a little bit. Always, always appreciated. Thank you very much. I'll see you next week. Until then, stay safe out there and please continue to be well, be safe, and behave. <laughs>